This is supposed to be um, Children's Church today, but there's not because Ashley's home with Will. I offered to stay home and let her come, but she said she didn't want to do the sermon, so <laughs> here we are. Uh, we'll, we'll, um, the, the plan is to have Children's Church um, next week instead. So unfortunately, you kids, you guys got to deal with me for one more week. <laughs> and adults. Before we start, let's pray. Oh, Lord, thank you. Thank you for the uh, opportunity to gather together, um, to be reminded of who you are and how you continue to work in our lives. I just pray that this morning that you would, um, that I would speak the words that you would have me speak, that you would prepare all our hearts to hear and to be attentive in your name. Amen. The last couple of weeks, we've been talking about discerning scripture, what that looks like, one of the ways to do that using what's called intertextuality. Simply put, it is, where have I heard this phrase or wording, that type of thing, these themes showing up over and over again. We've specifically been focusing on the story of two siblings. One stays and one goes away. And we've been looking at things like Cain and Abel, Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, and the list goes on. We've been comparing those to each other and learning as we do so how we can get more depth out of it. I think when we really talk about, though, this idea of intertextuality, discerning scripture this way, I think what happens is, is why should we even expect the Bible to work like this? Because if we don't think about that, it can be like, well, it's just, it's just there because it's there. Why, why should we put it there? Why would we expect it to work like that? And I think fundamentally what we need to understand is, is that Scripture 1 is extremely sparse in the details. Why? Because unlike us, we, can't, we can communicate giant books and handle them around. That was not the way things were when it was originally written, right? So they literally dropped out the vowels. They dropped out the spaces. They got things as concentrated as possible. So how do you communicate detail if you're trying to be precise, to be concise? Patterns, Patterns repetition. So how do you do that? So I, I think one of the ways that I, I really think that is helpful to think about this is um, it's changed, the technology's changed, but the uh, way we used to use uh, create 3D uh, images. It's a little hard to see here, but you have that offset where they'd, they'd have the red image, the blue image, and they're slightly offset from each other. You're wearing the glasses, and through that, you create depth. The fact that things are very similar, but they're slightly offset from each other, creates a, a perception of depth when you're wearing the glasses. In the same way as we read scripture, we can expect to sort of see the same type of thing, where one story laid on top of each other creates a depth that the individual story doesn't create. It leaves things to be very, very narrow and de very detailed sparse. So if it puts something in there, we should stop and go, why all of a sudden is it noting the fact that somebody is wearing this thing or he doesn't have hair? What about all the other people? Are they bald or are they not bald? I don't know. Like that's, we don't often get told the details about a person. So when we do, we should stop and say, are those details important? The answer is absolutely. So, I think an example is really helpful here as we've been talking about this. I'm gonna, 
As, as we've been doing the last couple of weeks, I'm going to summarize a story for you. And I want you to just shout out what, you, what story you hear in this one. A king is oppressing the people of Israel. The Lord raises up someone to oppose the king. They have to flee into exile because the king seeks to kill, kill them. What did you, you said who? Okay, yeah, okay. Okay, so you start to, you start to hear that. No, they, they have to flee because they have to, a king seeks to kill them, which, again, still sort of sounds like David and Saul. It sounds like Moses. Um, they return from the exile when the king is dead. Again, still sort of David and Saul, Moses. Um, they meet with the new king. The king, that new king, will, chooses to be even more oppressive to the people than the last king. So you, okay, so up to one point, I think we were sort of David, and, but it sounds more like Moses now at this point, okay? So we hear this Moses one. What if I were to tell you that, surprise, surprise, this is not the only story that fits into this category. The other one I would, I would point out to you would be 1 Kings 11 and 12, less common of a sermon one. First, uh, this is Solomon, and God raises up someone to oppose him. Who does he repay, raise up to oppose him? Jeroboam and his son Rehoboam. So the story goes, Solomon has gone after other gods. He's become oppressive to the people of Israel. God raises up Jeroboam to oppose him. A prophet comes to Jeroboam and says, God's going to give you 10 of the 12 tribes for you to rule over. Solomon hears about it and seeks to kill him, so he flees. Solomon dies. Jeroboam comes back. He meets with Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, against the advice of, his elder, of the wise leaders in, the, the, in Israel, chooses to not be working with the people of Israel, but he goes, I'm going to be even more oppressive than my father was. So we stop right there for a second, okay? There's these similarities between the story. If we were to notice those similarities, who is Solomon in this story in contrast to the story of Moses? Solomon is the king. Solomon is the king, which means he's also compared to Pharaoh, okay, right? So the question is, is this a, you know, is this a, um, a should we come to this conclusion? Should we come to the conclusion that Solomon has become another pharaoh? If we were to go back in the story and read that story again, we might notice the fact that there are a couple things. One, Solomon has horses and chariots. The only person who's had horses and chariots up to this point, Pharaoh and a couple other oppressive empires. There's been no one else. Solomon also starts to build store cities. Who's built store cities up to this point? Only one other person in the entire biblical story, Pharaoh. So who has Solomon become now in this story? Pharaoh. Do you see how laying these stories on top of each other, but then starting to, we get a sense, maybe there's something here, but then we test it. We test it to see, is this some place we can go? Now the irony of this is then, what's the next question, which is, what is geographically Israel become in this story? Egypt. Egypt has become Israel, Israel's become Egypt. So where does Jeroboam flee to? He flees to Egypt. Because Egypt is now a safe place, not an oppressive place, in contrast to Israel. 
And we could keep going on. But the idea is, is as we sit and contrast and compare stories, we can get depth that isn't there just by reading the one story because it's sparse. But it, the expectation is we lay them on top of each other and we grow and we learn. We're challenged through those stories. So I want to review some of what we've been doing the last couple of weeks on the story of two brothers. The first week we looked at the idea of favor and how it is showed to one, but not at the cost or exclusion of others. So even as we see, say, one brother being favored, that doesn't mean the other one's also excluded. Blessing is not something that is to be grasped, but to be shared outwards. The conclusion from last week, we, we heard um, in the story of Ammon and Absalom, there's a woman who comes into the story and she makes the claim that God, only God is the one who brings us from exile. And as we meditated on the story, we saw how that's true in the story of Jacob and Esau, in the story of Joseph. God is the only one who brings them, and also in Moses. We see God being the one who actually brings them out of exile. They desire to bring, be, uh, come out of exile, but only God is the one who steps in and actually brings that about. We looked at how Passover forces the people of Israel to face the very thing that brings them into exile. And so they invert the very betrayal of Joseph and as so doing, prepares themselves to be able to be a people who are not constantly betraying their brother but leaving them behind, but instead united and setting a front that is we corporately are going to work together, not to get rid of those who we dislike. We redeem brothers, not send them away to solve the problem. And finally, we looked at how Mark picks up this exact idea and uses it to show us how Jesus joins himself to us to bring us back from exile. He returns us from exile by what he accomplishes on the cross so that we don't expect exile is even part of the outcome anymore because what Jesus did solves the problem in a way that never was before. Now, like last week, I wanted to look at the idea of, I think when authors make claims as we're reading through scripture, they say something and it can be like, ah, sure. But sometimes I really, to me, I, I've been getting to the point where when someone makes a claim in scripture, I think if I don't understand why that claim even is true, that's an invitation to learn something about how scripture reads itself. And as we learn that, that is important. So, for instance, in John 1.29, Jesus is being baptized, and John makes the claim, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, when I stop and, and look at that phrase, it's so familiar, we can just go, okay, sure. But there's no lamb that takes away the sins of the world. All through, through the law, there is only one animal that takes away the sins. There are ones who deal with the cause of sin to the tabernacle, but there's only one animal who deals with taking away sins, and that's the goat on the Day of Atonement. So how does John get to this point where what he seems to be doing is fusing two ideas? He is fusing both the Passover lamb, who brings us from exile from the garden, 
and the two goats of the Day of Atonement and makes us fit to dwell in God's presence. He is fusing these two thing, things, and he seems to say it and just moves on. No, by the end of John, John actually demonstrates what that looks like. How do you fuse the Day of Atonement and the Passover lamb into one thing and what Christ's actions do and accomplish through that? But I think for me, what I, I really stop here and go is, John just fused two ideas. Why does he even get the right to do that? We could say because spirit, the Spirit led him to do that. But I think, again, if we want to sort of meditate on Scripture and ask the question, how does this really change us? How should we be reading Scripture that we are consistent with what the Spirit has led John to say? That's what I want to sort of focus on here. Second, how can John believe that Jesus can be a lamb and goat replacement? If we don't, if we want to understand what those, those symbol, symbols are or how those work, we might ask the question, how can John get to that? Because he's saying the lamb of God, and we just go, yeah, sure, the lamb of God, Jesus is the lamb of God. Sure, because it's so familiar. But how does he come to that conclusion in the first place? So the Day of Atonement, it's the only day of the year where the high priest is allowed into the Holy of Holies. It's a fundamentally significant day, and surprise, surprise, I know you had to know by the third sermon it was definitely going to get there. I've got us around to Leviticus. Yay! The Day of Atonement is the central focus of Leviticus, and as such, when we sort of ask the question, how does this Day of Atonement fit into what Jesus is doing? We need to just orient ourselves a little bit. So that next slide, and I, um, only one day a year do you make it into that very white central portion, and only the high priest does. When he does, there is this constant movement from uh, unclean to clean, but then from clean to holy to more holy. Each time you're coming, you're getting closer and closer to something that is extremely dangerous. God's presence is not safe. <laughs> And it's often that we forget that that's, that's something that is fundamentally true of what Scripture is driving at, that on our own, just approaching God is dangerous. And as we come in, we need to be reminded of that. So as the Day of Atonement happens, there's a step of rituals that happens that allows that to pass and to partake in that. The Day of Atonement, then in some sense, really seems to be getting us back to the original goal of creation where God and man are dwelling together. This is what we see at the very beginning. And then there is a break, something that happens to the relationship so that humanity and God do not dwell in that close proximity. And so the day of atonement looks to that day when all will be there, but only one goes in on that day. When we get to the ritual itself, it can feel daunting. And yet, if you ever really say, open up a manual for your phone, computer, bake a cake, the level of steps easily matches this or more. It's just so unfamiliar to us that we often feel very overwhelmed by it and, and just get lost in all the details. So I'm going to focus on a couple here. One, there are two goats. Two, the priest has this very colorful robe that he wears all year long, except for on the Day of Atonement, when he's told he's not allowed to wear it, he has to take it off. 
and wear just a linen garment. That's what he's going to wear. Both the head cap and the full body thing is all linen. There's no color associated with it. One of the goats is taken and killed. The blood from it is sprinkled onto the Ark of the Covenant. The other goat is now sent out into the wilderness bearing the sins of the people. This is the goat that actually carries the sins. It's the only time that scripture says that sins are carried away. After that's done, the priest goes back into the holy place. He takes off his all linen garment, sets it to the side, and puts back on his multicolored robe. And then there is a, an essential, ascension offering or a burnt offering. Now, if I were to summarize this for you, I might say something along the lines of, there are two goats are used, one stays and one goes away. Two. It seems like it's very interested in what the priest is wearing. And boy, doesn't that start to sound really familiar to us in the stories of the deceptions of Jacob and Esau, where there are two goats, and what they're wearing is fundamental to the deception of what's going on. Joseph, same thing. There is a goat and a coat. There is deception that happens. Judah repeats this, goat and a coat, this constant deception that's happening. But if I stop for a second and really ask some weird questions that seem to bother me about this is, Say I'm deceived, I see this, that there is something about what happens in the Day of Atonement that is tying me back to these stories. It bothers me. Because what we did in Passover was supposed to redeem that story to remind us that getting rid of one at the expense of the other is a problem. So why now have a ritual that does the opposite thing. Now, we seems in some ways to be celebrating or commemorating the very actions that we settled on are wrong. Why would we do that? What would be the reason for that? Two, why would reenacting the story of two brothers, this betrayal act, give access to a God in a way that wasn't possible after Genesis 3? I'm not going to answer that one. Sorry. I'm just going to put that one out there and then leave it for you guys. <laughs> too, too long, um, and I'm still working on it. Um, so we're going to go back to this one, though. Why commemorate the very actions that were problematic in the stories? So I think as we think about that, if you were to create a ritual to have people remember their specific sins to make it relevant to them, to drive home that there's something about sin that is problematic, wrong, and that we needs to be dealt with. What would that ritual look like? And with that, how can you have such a very large variety of sins, all different types, and have a ritual that is somehow bringing to remembrance the actions of a specific sin that they've committed. Because we're going to all do different types. So one of us might not do one that has to do with getting rid of our brother. And yet somehow we need to have 
an action that brings us to remembrance of the very action we do. So then if we go back to that story of the two siblings again, and we've looked at how we're not looking at just one, we're looking at many of them, we see the fact that in these stories of two siblings, we have things like Jacob, and he steals his brother's birthright. He also lies to get it. Cain and Abel, Cain murders his brother. The other brothers in, say, the Joseph and, and Judah story, they seem to be coveting the very relationship that they want with their father. And so how do we solve that problem? We get rid of our brother. And this has been the solution throughout the story, is if I get rid of my brother, I think maybe I'll fix the issues that are going on in my family. But it doesn't. It doesn't fix it. Disrespecting parents. Again, if we come back to these stories, they deceive their parents at the expense of whatever else it takes. And God has spoken into these stories, given guidance in these stories, and the brothers choose to ignore it. So you look at that list, it just starts to sound pretty familiar to us. A little bit like the Ten Commandments. So now, if we're trying to remember our specific actions, bring them back, why not have a ritual that actually sounds like the exact brother's behavior because all of us are committing, in some sense, one of these. And so it's bringing us to remembrance of that. So I'll read you a quote from Callum Carmichael, who's written a really nice piece all about the Day of Atonement. Any right that addresses the issue of forgiveness, of wrongdoing, has to focus primarily on the role of memory. An Israelite has to recall his individual wrong and equally important because it is a national, national communal right he has, I am suggesting to recall his nation's beginnings specifically, the first time the issue of forgiveness of sins arose and the particular event that led to it. So he's saying, you got to remember it, and you got to remember it in relation to your people, because this is not about me, it is about the corporate national behavior and decisions. It's always that. It is we are united, we are not divided. Continuing, Callum, one way to proceed is to have the members of the group identify themselves with the first ancestors, the first sons of Israel, and the particular offense for which they eventually seek and receive forgiveness. So you see here that by doing this, we're not celebrating the very actions of the brothers. Instead, what we're doing is forcing people to be associated with that, to remember what was done, and in so doing, to remind them of where things are supposed to be. And as we remember the story, we remember that as we're doing these rituals, we have the Day of Atonement, but we also have the celebration of Passover, and they both happen annually. And so there's this constant reminder, both of the failures of their brothers and sisters that have come before them, and of where they're to be, which is not to set each other out, to get rid of them, but to bring them back. So the problem with the Day of Atonement, though, is, is that every year it has to be done. And every year, you still have the same problem, which is all it does is basically is a large reset button. It resets things back to where we started at the beginning of the previous year. We're not progressing forward. We're not getting past anything. It's just a reset. The best we get is just a clean set. 
So the prophets and the second temple literature that we, we sort of know where the te- Old Testament ends and before the New Testament begins constantly are looking forward to this day when there will be a day of atonement that would truly deal with the issues for good, not just reset it once and then just keep doing that over and over and over again, but really deal with the problem. And so that brings us to the story of Jesus. And so what I want to see, what I want to focus on here is, is again, John opens his gospel by claiming a bunch of things. But right here at the very beginning, he claims that Jesus is that fusion of the Passover lamb and the day of atonement. And we start to see how these two things have come together and the fact that both of these lead us to the same point. There is a betrayal of brothers. One reminds us of that betrayal and in so bringing us into the story challenges us to repent for our sins. Passover does the opposite. It reminds us of what the ideal is supposed to be, anchoring us in that. And so when John comes into the story and he says what he does, he wants us to orient around the lamb and not the goats. Because that's where we're to be oriented. The lamb is the one that we're to focus on. The goats are, are, are a, a, celebra- a, a reminder of what has happened, but not where we want to settle. We want to settle on the idea of the goat or the, the lamb who brings us into something new and sets us right with our relationships with each other. So John brings us into this. And so now he's going to lay this out for us. John 18. Verses two and three. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place for Jesus often met with their disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And we looked at last week how we can get lost in the story from the standpoint of Judas is Judah. Because we move from Greek to, old, from Greek to Hebrew, we often lose what the words are. In the same way, Miriam is Mary, and we hear her song reminding us of, she sings when she hears about how she's going to bring forth a son, that that son reminds her of an exodus, of something new, and we hear the echoes of a Miriam who stood on the other side of the sea and God, God brought his people through, and she sings a song. So that Miriam, when she, Mary, when she sings, is reminding us of that. In the same way, when we hear Judah and we see him betraying again, we stand and we recognize that here is a new Judah betraying someone else in the same way for silver, in the same way that it's happened before. But unlike the brothers who've become before, Jesus isn't caught off guard by this. John 18, 4, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? So John... The other brothers are constantly all caught off guard as they are betrayed and, and left for replacement, if you will. Jesus walks into the situation knowing what's going to happen, and he, he recognizes it, and he allows it to happen anyway. So as we look at how does Jesus fulfill the Passover, we, one recognizes the fact that as John is telling us the story, he's constantly referencing the Passover. He's putting us in this point of going, say, do you, all right, we're in the Passover, we're in the Passover. This is happening because it's about the Passover. So he keeps referencing us to that. John nineteen twenty nine. 
a jar. Jesus has just asked for, a, he, he says he thirsts. So John 19, 29, a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And so that hyssop branch has only showed up a couple times in the story. And the first place it shows up is in the Passover. So John is starting to bring us into this idea of the Passover. He keeps anchoring us into this point of saying, do you see John 19, 36? For these things took place, the scripture might be filled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Now, if you open up your Bible, most places are going to send you to the same place, Exodus 12, 46, right there in the middle of the Passover. And it's reminding us that that Passover lamb was not to have its bones broken. And so Jesus stands in fulfillment of that. And so we start to see that Passover, John is driving at this idea of that Jesus is both Passover lamb and the Day of Atonement. So if we look at the Day of Atonement, in John 18, 14, I don't have this one in here. Um, it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. And so, again, betray the one to solve the problem. This is what the constant mantra of all the brothers has been through. If I get rid of the one, I solve the problem. Scapegoat the one to deal with the issues. So John 18, 38 to 40. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. No, Barabbas was a robber. So here he places in front of him the choice, this one or this one. And we start to hear echoes of the Day of Atonement, or do we? You know, Matthew's gospel actually picks this up, and in some of the manuscripts, it goes so far as to put him as Jesus Barabbas, and not just Barabbas. And the question is, why would we even come to that conclusion? Barabbas means son of the father. So here stands son of the father, and the true son of the father, and which one will be chosen? Which one will be portrayed? And so they choose. And so the one now is going to be sent away to be dealt with, the one who is innocent, who bears our sins. John 19, 23. We're still looking for that idea of, say, the priest taking off his nice royal garments. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier and also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. If you look at that word tunic, and you look in the Greek Old Testament, you'd find it shows up in a couple of places. If you were get, betting people, where would you expect that to show up? Do what? Leviticus, right? Yes, okay, so it's in Exodus and it's Leviticus describing whose garments? The priest's garments. And it shows up in another story. It shows up in the brothers taking Joseph's coat. 
So if we don't expect it, sure enough, it's there. We're starting to see these connections. We're bringing this back together. Here is Jesus being betrayed as if he was still Joseph, and yet he's also bringing these story of the day of atonement to fulfillment because those aren't separate ideas. Those are connected, and they always have been. John 20, verses 5 and 7. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he, he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded up in a place by itself. And so again, we remember that here is Jesus. He is both functioning as the Passover lamb the day of atonement goats, but he's also the priest himself. And so how does John get permission to do that? Because we've been attentive to the story enough to recognize that these stories are all bringing things together. It is driving all of this home to this point where we can see that Jesus is those things because it was always reminding us of those things. And so Jesus brings about this fulfillment. He lays off those linen garments so that he can pick up new royal garments. And so if we, we get to that point, then we'd ask ourselves, do we get to see the Holy of Holies? And so we get to John 20, 11 and 12. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. So here's Jesus' body. The blood of him is now there, sprinkled, if you were, onto an area, left there. And if we, again, think back to the Ark of the Covenant, what's at the head and the feet? But the cherubim or the angels? And so here we get to see that Things have been opened up because of what Jesus has done. It's not a one-day deal. Things have been opened up. It has been dealt with. Sin has been dealt with so that we now have access to God in a way that we never have had since Genesis 3. So when John says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, he is standing right in the middle of the stories and bringing us into those stories to recognize how Jesus has been betrayed just like all those other stories before. But he brings about fulfillment in a way that sets the problem right for good. So in Christ, we reach the culmination of the fulfillment of Passover and the Day of Atonement, betrayed by those who close close to him and scapegoated by people who would solve the problem by getting rid of him He completes his work and brings us into a new exodus and a day of atonement that dealt with the problem of sin once and for all. Sorry, Dan, I think I skipped a slide or two. I just want to read that part again. In Christ, we reach the culmination of the fulfillment of Passover and the day of atonement, betrayed by those close to him and scapegoated by people who would solve problems by getting rid of him. He completes his work and brings us into a new exodus and a day of atonement that dealt with the problem of sin once and for all. So I went short today because what I'd I'd like to do is one, open up for questions and response, but also we've done three weeks on a specific idea. Betrayal, redemption, 
unity. And so what I'd like, I, what I'd like to do is actually open up for you all, just from the standpoint of, is there something that's, that's connected with you, challenged you, um, things you'd like to think about a little bit more or meditate on before we close? Trisha. So in hearing this as uh, like the end of the, not the end of the New Testament, but the end of the story, let's just say it like that. Okay. Now we are able to um, come to the Lord ourselves. Mm-hmm. And um, so in the rest of the story is our commission from Jesus. And how does that fit in with the stories of the Old Testament? Okay, sure. So, so just make sure I'm, I'm understanding right. So your question is, okay, so now we have sort of a new beginning in Jesus, okay? So he set things in a different way. How does that, our understanding of what we've come before, then change how we should act because of what Jesus has done? Correct. Okay. Okay, so I, I think, you know, just to that, go ahead. Parallel to stories in the, New, in the Old Testament as these stories were parallel. Especially the commission, you Yeah. So you're saying, how does specifically what Jesus says in the, the commission as he, he is getting ready to ascend specifically should impact that? Um, how does, um, did he give us a new part of the story then? Mm-hmm. Versus, you know, being parallel to stories in the Old Testament. Gotcha, gotcha. Uh, so I, I would say, I mean, at, at one sense, you know, because of what Jesus has done, he's dealt with sin in a way that, you know, hasn't been before. Okay, so because of that, because what he does when he pours out the Spirit on us, that's why all of a sudden, all of a sudden we hear all of this unity claim, you know? And the answer is, is yeah, because, because of what, the, what Jesus has done, because of what the Spirit's done, a unity that wasn't possible before is possible, but only because of what work he's done. doesn't mean we can, and I think, you know, meditation on, on those stories that have come before, Jesus is self-sacrificing. The brothers finally start to recognize that in those stories. You know, Judah finally says, you know what? As much as I really, it's easy just to get rid of Benjamin. I could. I could just pitch him under the way to Joseph, but I won't. He rises to the occasion to say, take me. In the same way, Jacob steals the blessing. All of a sudden, when he comes back and he sets things right with Esau, he does it by inverting all of those things, by undoing the very things that he did to betray Esau. And that speaks of our uh, gift of forgiveness. Exactly. And I think, but also, you know, again, we're seeing what Jesus is doing. Jesus allows himself to go through that betrayal. And in the same way, there are times where we could seek justice that I think we should be challenged to ask the question, what does that look like for us to be the one that self-sacrifices to walk in the same steps as Jesus? Not because we accomplished something of the Day of Atonement that wasn't achieved before, but because that we're, supposed to, we're called to walk in his shoes, to, to, to walk in him because he's, he, he is inside of us. Does that make sense? Okay. Take up your cross daily. Exactly. Yep. In relation to the world. Mm-hmm. And it's persecution. And- yeah, right. But as far as the commission is concerned that she was asking about, that's something new. There's no parallel in the Old Testament because what Jesus did was so I'd have to think specifically about the commission and whether or not there's something unique about that. I'm just saying, I think what we see in those stories is that Jesus sets things right, but that doesn't mean that we still shouldn't be meditating on those stories with the challenge of saying, how does that, how do we bring things, how does what happened before, what has been revealed before, 
still allow us to be challenged. To, to the point of, of um, I think, in, in our culture, we still see this. It is so easy in our culture to scapegoat somebody. <laughs> Are you conservative? Are you, you know, whatever it is, the topic is, people are always trying to convince you, if only we could get rid of that person or that people group. And I think in these stories, we're, we're supposed to be facing that story and looking at that and recognizing that all of humanity is made in God's image. And so we step into the story and saying, no, the solution is not scapegoating people. Does that make sense? I, yeah. I feel like... Um I'm trying to figure out how to say this. Mm-hmm. You know how we started the, in the Old Testament, we keep going through and we hear the stories over and over. I think we were trying to, or they, mm-hmm. the people, we're trying, and we're the people now, we're trying to do it on our own accord. Mm-hmm. And God says, no, mm-hmm. you can't do it on your own. And he's showing us these stories. And he said, I'm the one who's going to, you know, take up your burden. Uh, yeah, this and, right. Um, so he just had to keep telling us over and over until his son came. And that was like the gift of all gifts. And now we know we can't do it on our own, but we have to do it with Jesus. Right. So right. to me, it's like, okay, guys, this is how it all started. But it's really not how it all started. I started it. Mm-hmm. You know, so you got to take yourselves out of the picture, sort of, mm. and put Jesus there. Sure. So kind of what I'm seeing. Yeah, I mean, I think, st- what, you know, be, always orienting ourselves around what Jesus has done is, is crucial to understanding that. So that's what we've, we've, we've been trying to sort of get to that point of saying, how does what Jesus does bring greater revelation? In the same way, you know, he goes to that story of the prodigal sons, and he's drawing on all these stories of two siblings betraying each other, but he, he pivots it, and he goes, don't you see that the father has always been there in all of these stories? These stories have always been about betrayal, but here's the father. And then you go back to all those stories and you can hear, you see God stepping into every single one of those stories in different ways and inviting all of the people to reconciliation through what he does. And so then Jesus, I think what Jesus does even, you know, brings that because he's, he's going like, don't you see the story's always been this way to your point. Yeah. So, yeah. Yes. Oh, okay. oh. I thoroughly enjoyed listening. I've never, there's things I should have talked about. I don't know what I'm talking about. Different from what you had shared. Hmm. And like, who, what's Jacob's father in law's name? Like, Laban. Laban. Yes. Pharaoh. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, I didn't like him. Mm. But I never made, like, that connection. You know what I mean? Sure. Like, it really helped me connect things. And, like, me and him have talked about it. Mm. And I was telling my husband about it. Because he likes this kind of stuff. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would say, um, for, you know, sometimes when I get up here, it sounds, one, I, I like to just read lots of things, but what I, some of these connections I've been making because I sit and I've, we've been stu- I've been studying scripture with the, my kids. And so when I read it by myself, I read at a speed that's way faster than when I slow down with the kids. And when I slow down with the kids, all of a sudden I go like, did you just see that? And the kids are like, what, what was I supposed to see? And I'm like, but like slowing down and spending the time with, with your kids, I think is, is just, you know, to me, it, it's opening up scripture and challenging me be, that reading by myself doesn't. So to your point, you know, of, of just like spending time with, with your kids, your kids are, want to, to learn and, and grow. So, yeah. 
Do you think uh, John's intentionally playing off of these themes uh, a lot more heavily because of his audience relative to like the other Gospels? Because John seems pretty intentional with some of this uh, this game they play, whereas the other Gospel writers uh, like that. Okay. Uh, I I would say, um, so actually, um, was it two years ago now? We went actually through, um, here we we preached through the Gospel of Matthew. And when we did, we looked at how um, Matthew actually lays out Jesus' movement as the story of him playing out all of Israel. Um, and so I, I think as, as we read those stories, what, we, what happens is, is that we, John is just easier, I think, for us to read because it sounds more like what we think Scripture should sound like. Um, but all of, all of them in different ways are picking these things up. Mark picks up the Day of Atonement in a, in a different way. Matthew picks them up, but he draws on Second Temple literature, so I didn't want to focus on that. So each of them in different ways are picking up these themes. They're just in different ways. Dan. I, I know this is off the subject, but um, so the <clears throat> prodigal son, where the son comes back and the father gives him the robe and the ring and the sandals, mm-hmm. and then he creates a feast, is just like the heavenly father for the bride is creating a feast for that when we get to heaven. Is there other parts of scripture that also talk about that feast? Uh, specifically drawing on that feast? Right. Or, or, you know, we talk about, you know, themes. Yes, okay. Um, I believe so. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so it's going to say so. Um, yeah, thank you for making Leviticus relevant again. <laughs> yeah, so I, I think, yeah, so to her point, yes, absolutely. Uh, Leviticus is there. And I think there, there are other ones. I, I, they're not coming to my mind at the moment. Um, but, I, you know, I, I think, again, as we sort of looked at even the story of um, a father gets a bride for his son, again, is one of these stories that just keeps coming up throughout Scripture, um, that each of these, I think, is pointing to something, and Jesus picks them up in different ways, or the New Testament authors do, inviting us to see Scripture as a story that we're to participate in. But I don't know specifically the feast one, just off the top of my head. Daryl. So I just want to commend you, if that would be the thing to say, for allowing God to rewire our thinking in the way we view Scripture. We're in that process of doing that. I know for myself, it's very easy to go and, and just look at Scripture just like you're going on a slow thing, read it at one level. <coughs> and what you're doing is you're pioneering, if I could say this, you're, you're allowing God to work through you to rewire our thinking and how Scripture does speak to us, sure. how He speaks to us, where... It's, it's opening up all kinds of new things. Mm. And sometimes that can be enough to make my head swim. Mm. But by the same time, not back I back off, but challenge my thinking. Yeah. Okay, you promised to guide me into all truth. Mm. And now you're doing that. Don't let me be overwhelmed. Show me how the pieces fit together. Right. Because when I first became a community Christian, I had all kinds of questions. And then I got into trouble, me trying to figure it out, instead of letting the Holy Spirit help guide me into all the truth. Sure. So I want to say that that, that is a very significant event. Um, and just to have a greater, it's easy to say, but when you start to take it in, just how powerful and eternal and life-changing what Christ did, hmm. where 
instead of being sent out into exile, now we are brought in. And for us, the goal is restoration, not scapegoating. And if we mm. don't do that, if, right. if we don't come to that place, we, we haven't really portrayed or represented Christ as what he wants. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Um, I would say, uh, just from the standpoint of, of this, this form of reading scripture or that type of thing, um, that's something that's actually, in, from, from what the people I study and things like that would say, is, is in the last 30 to 40 years, there's been a, a huge growth in less critiquing scripture and saying, well, that's a silly way to say things or that type of thing, and saying, why does it say it this way? And in so doing, what they've discovered, what, what most scholars are starting to discover is, is that what we're, we're learning to do is to read scripture a really old way that's always been there but got forgotten over time or lost in certain ways. And that doesn't mean that we, don't, we didn't understand what Scripture was saying. Okay, that I, I want to make sure I'm clear on that. It doesn't mean we didn't understand that Jesus, what Jesus did was fundamentally important, but that by understanding Scripture this way, it opens it up to even more relevance to us. And so that's something that, that's really been something that's been growing and really just is, is exploded in the last 30 to 40 years. But again, it's reminding us, if, you know, if you, um, sometimes I listen to a guy who's a Jewish scholar and he's constantly quoting people from like the first and second century AD and they make these claims and he goes, how, how do they get to this point? And then he sort of walks me, you know, walks us through, how do you get to that point of being able to do that in the same way scripture does? And what it's doing is it's reclaiming what scripture is always intended to be able to be there. It's just learning to hear it. Yeah. And I've always thought that there's so much that's being revealed out of the word right now mm. that I'm just like, it's just doing it again. Yeah. That cycle. Yeah. Repeating and repeating, mm-hmm. being faithful to what he wants to reveal it in our generation we need it yeah right right yeah i think yeah um uh he'll continue to reveal things that you know i think even at some point what we well anyway we read scripture you know a couple hundred years from now i you know imagine imagine you know like you'd be able to walk into that environment and hear where the church is at that point i think is would just be exciting to think about um, to your point about things just, you know, like God continues to mature and grow the church. So, go ahead. I'm just thinking about how, how do we personally apply these ideas of, um, you know, walking in Jesus' shoes and, and um, doing those things. And I'm just thinking, mm-hmm. in all of it, we need to be depending on our Father yeah. Our Heavenly Father right. to be working on our behalf. Because if we're going to step out like that, we need His protection. We need His provision. We absolutely need Him to be working in other people's hearts to bring that unity. Correct. Yeah. To bring us together, bring repentance. And it's just like, we really need Him. We can't forget that He's the one we're depending on. We're just, we're walking, but He's there with us. Mm. Right, right, yeah, to, yeah to, your, to your point, exactly. You know, it's only through Christ's, act, uh, Christ's work that any of this is possible um, and through the Father that, that brings this, this about. Um, it's not by, um, to my Father's statement, something along the lines of gritting your teeth 
and just trying really hard. Um, I think that's sort of what you're driving at there, right, Steve? Yeah, but even just like, oh, now Jesus is close to do this. Good luck. You know? mm, yeah, right. Yeah, we're constantly to come back to him. He's still right there with us, mm-hmm. walking in all of these things. Yeah, right. Yeah, there's, it's not like he accomplished something and then he goes, have fun. Um, but he's there guiding throughout all of it. Yeah, is that anything else? Yeah, Angela. So I'm going back to the very beginning. Okay. Studying scripture in this kind of way, intertextual way. Yeah. Um, like how do you how do you apply that with just daily reading? Huh? Yeah. It's like mind blowing right now. Ah, sure, sure, sure. So, so okay. So for like the the one we just did at the beginning, um, the king oppressing the people. Where do I start with that one? Um, Jeroboam gets to the point where he sets up a golden calf. I was like, there's only one other story where we have a golden calf. I wonder whether or not I should be thinking of that story in this story. Does that make sense? So, so I, I think what I've heard people sort of describe it as something along the lines of, imagine you're an archaeologist and you are digging and you, you discover whatever the thing is, a, a bone. And, and you, you see one bone and you're like, well, in theory, this suggests that I might find more bones if I were to dig around in each direction. And you dig around and you find no other bones. It, there's no skeleton there. But say you take that one bone and you dig out and you go, oh, hey, look, there's more. And, and here's a leg and here's a neck and here's a tail. Okay, I'm starting to get a sense that this thing, I am supposed to be making a connection to that thing. So start with just a single detail and then meditating on it. Does that, okay, yeah. So it's like, start with the big ones. Not all these are just gonna instantly come, but practice is, is you know, like, as anything you're learning for the first time, start just with just a small thing and working through. It's one of the reasons I did this two siblings one, because I feel like that one's, it's so repetitive that just hearing that one and hearing it over and over again, I think really helps, so. Give me something to <laughs> like a specific story that I sh- that I should do. Oof. Um. Uh, would be the, the great flood would be a good one. Okay. Jesus is a is this boat, the boat, the the raft. Okay. Uh, um. So okay. So if you want to say, um, we, we've talked a little bit about this, but if you if you look at the story of the flood as in parallel to what we start with creation as is in in complete utter and chaos, and then sort of running it back out. If you st- sit and look at those two stories and, and you see the dove hovering over the water and the spirit hovering over the water and, and you start looking at those things, what you're going to find is, is that there's a lot of those type of things where you just, you know, where they're, it, this skeleton is here also. We can talk about more. I, it, um, there, there are some great books, some great authors. I could recommend videos, all that type of stuff, that, different ways to practice this. Um, so we can talk more about it afterwards or I can try to think of something and then send that out in an email if that would be helpful to people. So. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Uh, there are certain podcasts or books of people who have been reading the scriptures this way and looking at yeah. the scriptures this way that can, are very helpful to kind of help the rest of us. Right. Oh, yeah. Right. Um, so, so reading and listening to those things is, is useful. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. I was going to say, if, if, if you hear any of this and think that I've just, uh, 
I walk up to scripture every time and it's just all of a sudden like, I just recognize it. it's totally not true. Like, totally not true. Um, this is something that is just, it, it is a, as anything, it's a refined and developed skill over time. Yeah. Key piece is understanding the story, knowing the stories. Yeah. So you yes. read it once. Yes. That isn't enough. As you read it the second time, mm. then you can start seeing the similarities to the other. Correct. So the more that you understand what's there, the more you can start seeing the, the links between them all. Correct. Yes, thank you. Um, and, and actually, I, while, I, while I'm here on that point, I, I love preaching to you guys because you have such a knowledge of Scripture that we can do this. I, I recognize that if, say, I go to other churches to do this, the knowledge of Scripture isn't there to be able to do this in this way. We'd have, to, we'd have to just read the stories over and over again so that we can get that. But because you are all so familiar with Scripture, it's, you know, all we're doing is just making a small connection we're just changing things just slightly and allowing it to be able to see that. Does that, so, but to Philip's point is, is read it and then read it and then read it and then read it some more. <laughs> okay. All right, I'm going to close. I'm going to read that last quote at the very end. In Christ, we reach the culmination of the fulfillment of Passover and the Day of Atonement. Betrayed by those close to him, and scapegoated by people who would solve problems by getting rid of him, he completes his work and brings us into a new exodus and a day of atonement that dealt with the problem of sin once and for all. So Lord, we do thank you for your work, for bringing us into this new exodus, for bringing a day of atonement that is eternal that brings us into that access to, to your presence in a way that hadn't happened in so very long. And Lord, we thank you for that work. In your name, amen.